For centuries, humans have been growing alongside our botanical brethren. Our histories have mixed and mingled to bring us modern medical marvels, faded folklore, and everything in between. Of course, in order to understand the plant, we have to start with its roots. I'm M. Governor Gaddis, and this is Rooted. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Rooted. This week, we're taking a closer look at another fan request. A desert staple and a favorite of both bartenders and bats alike, agave. Agave isn't just one plant, but a genus of monocots. They are native to dry, arid regions of North and South America, as well as the Caribbean. They are often referred to as succulents, as they don't require much water, have relatively shallow roots, and most easily reproduce through pups. They're known for their thick, spiky leaves that are often a bluish-green color and grow in massive rosettes that dot the desert landscape. They belong to the Asparagaceae family, but it took us a while and a lot of genetic research to group them there. However, if you've ever seen one with its gigantic asparagus-like bloom, it's really not all that surprising. Speaking of blooms, agaves bloom only once in their life cycle. Because of this, they're technically considered multi-annuals, not perennials, as each plant can only bloom and go to seed once. When they do bloom, agaves put all of their energy into their flower, creating a massive stalk that towers over the landscape and produces a ton of seeds meant to be scattered out in hopes of finding new places to spread. While the effort is draining and relatively unsuccessful, with a super low rate of successful growth due to the sheer number of lucky breaks the seeds need to sprout, it's definitely worth it to ensure genetic diversity in agave and to help them adapt with changing climates. While seeds are certainly important to the life cycle of agave, it's definitely not the most common form of reproduction for them. The fastest way agave can reproduce is through pups. Basically, they have a short, uncomplicated rhizome system above their roots, which allows them to sprout out genetic clones of themselves. That's pretty cool and all, but it also does absolutely nothing to support genetic diversity of the species, leaving all the plants from that group susceptible to the same pests, diseases, and other issues. Now that we know a little bit more about what agaves are and how they grow, let's dive deeper into where they came from, at least according to Aztec legend. Once upon a time, the wind god Ehecatl had grown tired of Titsumil, the goddess of light's antics. She had literally blocked out the light and had unleashed her scary chaotic army of demons onto the earth below, allowing them to eat anyone and everyone they came into contact with. One day, Ehecatl had had enough, and decided it was time to end all that noise once and for all. He ascended to her home ready to throw down, and discovered her beautiful granddaughter, Maya Huel, the goddess of fertility. Apparently, Titzimitil, 
was jealous of her youth and beauty and was holding her captive. Instead of attacking her, Ehecatl fell in love with her and took her back to earth. Unfortunately, her grandmother wasn't too far behind them. So, they decided to turn themselves into plants to hide from her. One version of the story is that they became trees so that they could caress every time the wind blew. Which, like, if your partner isn't so committed to you that even in being a plant they want to be with you, find a better partner. Anyway, the whole tree disguise thing worked for a while, but then her grandma found them and was pissed about the years-long goose chase. So she did what any scorned lady would do and raised hell. In her rage, she killed Mayahuel. Ehecatl was devastated. He went to her grave every day and wept. Eventually, the other gods got a little worried and decided they should all come together to offer him something. They settled on a plant, which bloomed forth from Ehecatl's tears, and they made it slightly hallucinogenic to help numb his pain. The other version is that they became a new plant that was made of long green spikes to represent their literal fall from the sky, with sharp spines to protect them from her grandmother. They lived entwined like that for a while, but eventually, she found them. And when she did, she realized she wouldn't be able to stop them because of their spikes. So instead, she burned the plant. In her anger, she missed some of the plant, and it sprang back to life as an agave. But the story doesn't start or end there. Presumably, before she met and fell in love with Ehecatl, Mayahuel had a bit of a fling with Patecatl, who was the lord of 13 days, and is apparently credited with discovering peyote's hallucinogenic properties. The result? Some awkwardness, maybe even a little regret, and, you know, 400 rabbit children she was left to raise alone. That's why Maya Huel is also sometimes called the goddess of 400 rests. She had to feed all those kids somehow. And seeing as later she became agave, and agave's milk is what causes drunkenness, it should come as no surprise that her army of rabbit children, also known as the Setsan Tohochitin, are often depicted in different states of stupor, with each one said to represent a different stage of drunkenness. For example, Rabbit 2, sometimes called Omechito, is said to embody the confidence of someone who is slightly inebriated, fun, carefree, and relaxed. Rabbit 5, on the other hand, is said to have had a bit too much, and might wake up with a slight hangover. The bigger the rabbit's number, the more extreme and negative the symptoms get. These siblings are also why the saying, as drunk as 400 rabbits, is a thing. The first person to apparently reach this level of drunkenness? A possum god, Tlaquache, who was responsible for assigning the course of rivers. The story goes that he was notoriously good at finding food and remembering the exact location he found it in. One day, he was extremely thirsty after a long day plodding out a river. He stumbled upon an agave and drank as much liquid as he could from the leaves. 
thirst appropriately quenched, he headed home. The next day, he returned to the agave for yet another drink, but this time, the liquid had fermented into pulque. So, when he drank it, he got extremely drunk and stumbled home. Apparently enjoying the experience, Tlacuate continued to visit the agave and others near his river sites regularly, and it's said that any time a river curves, it's likely because he was a little tipsy. Porque, the drink mentioned in the last two stories, is kind of like an early tequila. It's not as alcoholic, but it's a milky white substance that comes from the leaves of the plant. Interestingly, the liquid in agave begins to ferment within 24 hours of being cut, so it takes very little time for this drink to be made. In fact, traditionally, it's drank straight from the center of the agave plant within a day or so of being cut. It's said to be a little sour, but still creamy, and with a sweetness similar to coconut. To those unfamiliar, it's often said to be an acquired taste and texture, so most often places in Mexico that still make this drink, which is rare, will still mix it with fruit juice to make it just a little bit more palatable. In the days of the Aztecs, this drink was said to be of the gods, and was therefore reserved only for those who were sick, elderly, of high importance, or those who were going to take part in ritualistic sacrifice. It was said to strengthen your ability to communicate with the gods, and was therefore not to be used without specific cause. Of course, now the use of agave in alcoholic beverages is regarded far more casually, with drinks such as mezcal and tequila being extremely popular. But what's the difference between the two? Tequila is made from the heart of the Blue Weber agave in only certain regions of Mexico, including Alisco, Guanajuato, and Tamalupas. The hearts are roasted in ovens, then shredded by either using industrial shredders or more traditional tajonas, which is a large stone blade dragged by a donkey. They are then left to ferment with a proprietary yeast and finally distilled at least two times in copper barrels. While that is the general process, it can vary a bit depending on the exact variety of tequila. Mezcal, on the other hand, is most often made from the agave Agastfolia, but it can be made from about 30 different varieties of agave. All mezcal comes from regions like Oaxaca, Guerrero, Durango, and Puebla. It's cooked in an underground fire, which is what gives it its signature smoky flavor. It's then left to ferment in its natural agave fibers, no yeast or anything added, and then distilled in a clay or copper pot. There are tons of agave-based alcohols out there, though. Some additional, though less common, agave-based drinks include ricea and bacanora. Ricea is made with pretty much any agave but the Blue Weber, which is the one that makes tequila. Then, in what seems to be pretty standard practice for modern agave-based alcohol, the heart is boiled, mashed by way of giant mallet, and then left to ferment in either wooden vats or vats that have been chiseled into the earth. Ricea is unique in that the agave paste mixture is then combined with other, often local, herbaceous materials to add additional flavors like caraway, mint, 
and apparently even blue cheese. It's most common to drink ricea straight, but it can also be used as a gym substitute. Bacanora is made similarly to mezcal, but in the state of Sorona, Mexico. It's made from the Pacific agave and is roasted with mesquite charcoal in underground pits, then crushed and distilled just like the others. Bacanora is said to taste a little less smoky and more pepper-forward, kind of like an herby cousin of mezcal, and is normally served neat or in more citrus-forward cocktails as a substitute. But agave isn't just used in alcohol. It has also historically played a large role in medicine and other aspects of daily life. In medicine, pulque was often used as a paste for cuts and burns, as it was believed to be sacred and to have healing properties. Agave fiber also played a vital role in creating textiles and other building materials, as it was super strong, fairly easy to come by, and easily takes on color, making it ideal for clothing and trade. Today, we mostly use agave for the aforementioned drinks, but we also use it to make our lives just a little sweeter. Agave nectar has been steadily gaining popularity as a substitute to honey. With a similar sweetness, viscosity, and even color to that of honey, it's easy to see why vegans and others who may not be able to eat honey would love the stuff. But it's not just humans who are super into the agave's nectar. Apparently, some of our lesser-loved pollinator pals also dig the stuff. Much like wolf spiders are to cranberry farmers, most agave farmers rely on support from bats to help keep their agaves healthy and help the plants produce seeds to keep their crops adapting and genetically diverse. Bats are actually some of the most efficient pollinators of agave, with some species being exclusively pollinated by bats. They're acting pretty similar to bees here, as what they're actually doing is eating the nectar and pollinating as kind of a secondary act. Conservationalists with groups such as Bat Conservation International have actually planted nearly 1 million agave plants in stretches of desert across eastern Mexico, New Mexico, and Arizona in order to help support migratory bats. Apparently, rats also like to eat the leaves, which is just like way less fun and super gross to me. Wood rats are the most notorious, but a variety of desert-dwelling rodents rely on agave as a vital source of hydration. Agave is also playing a vital role in adaptive biotechnology, as it's being studied to help support other plants and what they need to grow and adapt with the changing water availability and seasons due to climate change. Because it can survive in some of the harshest climates in the world with little to no support, they are a prime candidate for helping our future crops become more drought-tolerant and less reliant on human intervention in terms of health and productivity. Agave is one of the most well-known and perhaps most cultivated desert plants. With massive, alien-like blooms, tons of tasty beverages, and its vital role in ancient culture as well as modern ecosystems, it's easy to see why. If you're fortunate enough to live near some wild-growing agave, make sure you say hello and tell them to keep up the great work. And if you have some planted in your landscapes, be sure to be careful with the amount of water you give them 
and keep an eye out for the dinosaur-like fields of asparagus that can come when a full colony blooms at once. It's always one of my favorite parts of the summer season here in the desert southwest. If you liked the show, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Rooted.Pod. We're on YouTube at Rooted.Podcast, and check out our website, RootedPod.com, for transcripts, updates, and so much more. Thanks for being here, and until next time, be kind to yourselves, be kind to the earth, and just like a plant, drink your water.